You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. I just want to pray. Um, Lord, you have been speaking uh, to us these last four weeks as we, just, as we have been considering our response to the poor. And Lord, I just pray, disrupt us again. Lord, as we follow your example, as we hear of what you do through broken lives, I pray, disrupt us again. Lord, as we, as we realize that our response may be more complicated than we'd hoped for, I pray, would we follow you, equipped by your Spirit, to lead people to full restoration to the Father. Amen. So we are continuing and completing our series on the poor this week, and we are considering this week the poor in our nation, in our community. And um, so we're going to start with a quick opinion poll, okay? A bit of interaction. People are looking nervously at one another. So um, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to answer agree, disagree, or don't know, okay? And then we're going to compare to see how we do against an actual survey. So this is the first question. There's only two. Christian churches in the UK are making a positive difference in the world. Those who agree, could you put up your hand? You're allowed to be contentious. You're allowed to say no. I think that is, you can look around, I think that's probably 60% of the room. Maybe 60-70% of the room. Anyone bold enough to say they disagree? Anyone disagree with that statement? People are looking around, aren't they? <laughs> We've got one. I feel like an auctioneer. And who, who would say don't know? That is the remainder of people. They just, you just don't know what difference. Well, World Vision, who are a charity that many people know, they commissioned a piece of research that asked 2,000 people, half of which were Christian, half of which weren't, that question. And this is what they said. Christians responded, 49% saying, I agree with that statement. However, Christians still answered, uh, they answered 20% disagree and 30% don't know. So that's 50% of Christians say yes, but 50% of Christians say either no or I disagree. If you look at the non-Christians, though, that's in the green there, only 20% of non-Christians would say the UK church makes any difference in the world, meaning 80%, four out of five people, would say no or I don't know. So I'm going to ask you one more question. Do you think, this is the question here coming up, local Christian churches, do they make a positive difference in my community? Would you answer the same, I wonder? So those who agree, a bit more hesitancy, I'm going to put it out there, a bit more hesitancy. Those who disagree, a few more hands. Those who answer don't know, you're not too sure still. So our results have changed, but actually the results from the survey didn't. They largely remain the same. 50% of Christians agree, only 20% of non-Christians agree. And what that tells us is that only one in three British adults think the UK church makes a difference to our community or to our world. I find this not only sobering, just quite depressing, to be honest. I find these numbers just really hard to digest. Because when you think about food banks that are in the news agenda, you know, over two-thirds of those are run by local churches across the country. There was a study that demonstrated that three billion pounds worth of hours were volunteered by religious groups in the UK, predominantly Christian, on homeless shelters, on all sorts of work with the elderly. 
just two statistics there that tell us an awful lot is going on from churches, but still only one in three adults in the UK say the church does make a difference. So what does this tell us, I wonder? I think there is a problem when Christians go and do social justice in our own community that we leave Jesus at the door. That too often when Christians step out to heal the brokenness in their own community, they do it in the name of good works and love than in the name of Jesus. This message this morning is not about PR, it's not about branding for the UK church, but I think there is something in those statistics that we need to respond to, and that is, do we respond in the name of Jesus, or do we respond as anyone could in the name of doing good works? In John 17, 23, it says, Then the world will know that you sent me and have looked and have loved them as you have loved me. Paula Gooder, um, who's based in the UK, she says this based on this research. In my view, what we need to do is get better at talking about the Christian faith that motivates us to show the love of Christ in the world, the why we do what we do question. She references 1 Peter 3.15 that says, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So from that verse, Paula goes on to say, if, everyone, if every Christian knew why they do what they do and said so regularly with gentleness and respect, we'd be in a very different place than we are now. So my first point for us all today is to respond in the name of Jesus. To not step out in, with other means, but respond boldly as Christians and as his church that wants to bring light to the darkness, healing to the brokenness. It wants to be equipped by the Spirit to lead people to the Father. But in doing so, I come from a professional kind of development world. We use the word proselytize. I think this is really dangerous. We never, ever go on the condition of someone responding to the gospel. We never use, the gospel, or use aid or relief as a hook or honey trap to give someone a platform to share the gospel. That is really dangerous stuff. But actually, when we are asked why we are involving ourselves in the, in the life of the poorest and broken in society, we answer boldly and we answer clearly that this isn't about good work. This is about being motivated by Christ, being motivated by the one who gave it all so that we could be adopted as sons and daughters of the king. But you can use your own words. You might not use those. They might be a little bit much. I don't know. And so some of the words I've used so far, brokenness and restoration, they lead us to just to think again what we mean by poverty. And I just want to recap some of the things we've been looking at these last few weeks. And if you've missed any of them, Pete considered our local context of the church. My colleague from Tear Fund, Joe, considered our response to the environment. And last week, I spoke on our response to the global poor. And today, we're thinking about our nation. And in each of these weeks, we have framed poverty as brokenness. Poverty is a result of the fall, whereby God created us for perfect relationship, not only with himself, but also with each other. God intended perfect relationship in the way that we see ourselves and with our response as stewards of his creation. But when sin entered the world, all those four relationships were broken. No longer were we right with God. No longer are we right with one another. No longer do we steward God's creation 
and no longer do we see ourselves the way God intends to see us. And the reason I want to go back here, and for those who were here last week, feel like I'm repeating myself, is that when we understand poverty as brokenness and not as deficit, first of all, it transforms the way that we respond. Because we also have a new understanding of who the poor are. We don't just see the materially poor. But thirdly, as Christians, a broken relationship with God is part of poverty. Thereby, we can only bring fullness and restoration when we lead people to Jesus, because that is part of their poverty, not knowing. We believe that Jesus went to the cross. His body was bruised, broken. His blood was spilt. We remember this in communion each week because he loves us. And it's only through the name of Jesus that all things are restored. So just to really exercise this point, I've got a formula here. This formula is from someone called Brian Fickett, who's written a book called When Helping Hurts. I've been highly influenced by this. For those of you who've been challenged, please pick up the book, read it, um, consider what it says. And this is just a way of framing what I've said. Material definition of poverty, thereby poverty as deficit, where the world has people with and without, or haves and have-nots, plus God complexes of the materially non-poor, thereby being those with resources, cash, education, seeing a world without, stepping in to save the day in the guise of a superhero, plus feelings of inferiority of the materially non-poor, so that's people without seeing those with come into their community and do lots of stuff for them, because it demobilizes, it disenfranchises them in the process, it equals harm to both materially poor and non-poor. This does damage. I don't know if, I probably didn't stress this point last week. This does damage to us as people wanting to respond, not only those who are in material poverty. And we're going to go on to illustrate this. The answer is not neutral. It's actually negative when we respond in this way. And Brian Fickett tells the story in his book, and to be honest, it translates so easily to us here in London that I'm going to share this story as well. And it's the story of Creekside Community Church. It's a church pretty much like our own, in the suburb of a city. This church had lots of young urban professionals. Unlike ours, it was predominantly Caucasian. And Creekside, coming up to Christmas, decided to reach out to the African-American residents of a nearby housing project. And this project was characterized by high rates of unemployment, teenage pregnancy, violence, drug abuse. And a number of the residents of Creekside Community Church expressed disdain for the project residents. And all the members were fearful of venturing inside. But Pastor Johnson insisted that Jesus cared for the residents of this housing project, and that Christmas was the perfect time to show his compassion. So what do the residents do to help? So believing that poverty is primarily the lack of material things, the members of Creekside decided at Christmas to address this poverty by buying Christmas presents for the children in the housing project. So church members went door to door, ding dong, they sang some Christmas carols, and they gave the kids some presents. And it went brilliantly. The kids' faces you know, lit up with a smile. The mothers, it was such a warm reception to those from the church. So because it went so well, the church decided to do this at Easter with some candy boxes. They decided to replicate and do it again at Thanksgiving with some turkeys. It's sounding good. But unfortunately, 
after several years, Pastor Johnson noticed that he was struggling to find enough volunteers to deliver the gifts to the housing project. So at the congregational meeting, he asked the members why their enthusiasm was waning. But it was difficult to get a clear answer. We've all been there. That kind of awkward silence. (laughs) There's something that people think. Until finally, one lady spoke up. She said, Pastor, we are tired. We're tired of trying to help these people out. We've been bringing them things for several years now, but their situation never improves. They just sit there in the same situation year in and year out. Have you ever noticed there's no men in these apartments when we deliver the Christmas presents? It's just single mothers having more babies to get bigger and bigger welfare checks. They don't deserve our help. In reality, there was a very different reason why uh, there were few men in the apartments when the toys came to be delivered. Because when the fathers of the children heard the doorbell and they saw through their peephole people standing there with presents, truthfully, they legged it out the back door. They ran away. For a host of reasons, low-income African-American men in the United States struggle to find and keep employment. And this often contributes to a deep sense of shame and inadequacy, both of which make it more difficult to apply for jobs. So the last thing these fathers needed was a group of middle to upper class Caucasian Christians providing presents for their children, presents that they themselves could not afford to buy. In trying to alleviate material poverty through the giving of these presents, Creekside Community Church increased the father's poverty of being. Ironically, this actually made them less likely to apply for a job and be successful, thereby exacerbating the poverty that they were trying to resolve. But in addition to hurting the residents of the housing project, the members of Creekside Community Church hurt themselves. Because at first, the members developed this sense of pride of helping the project residents through their kindness. But later, when they observed... um, But later, when they observed the residents' failure to improve the situations, the the members' disdain for the residents increased. So what is often called compassion fatigue set in, and they became less and less willing to help their low-income residents. So as a result, the poverty of being increased for the church members. Furthermore, the poverty of community increased for everyone involved as the gulf between the church members and the housing projects actually increased as a result of this intervention. And this could translate so easily to us here in Ealing, a similar response to the poor in our community. But our efforts to help the poor can hurt both them and us. It's not neutral. When we treat poverty as deficit, it keeps people locked in dependency. However, it also, in the long term, does damage to those trying to help. And there's people here maybe nodding or thinking in your heads, yeah, compassion fatigue is set in for me. It may be someone so close. It could be a family member. It could be a friend. It could be a neighbor. Someone that you have, month after month, year after year, written the same check, done the same thing. And as you've seen no change in that person's life, you've got frustrated actually more than that, you've been robbed of hope for change in that person. 
I don't want us to get caught in this loop of hopelessness, but I do want us to think, well, what's the point? I want us to examine and understand some of the ways that we choose to respond. I want us to rethink the idea that doing something is better than nothing is actually a flawed idea. So Nobel laureate um, Amrita Sen said this about poverty. It is this lack of freedom to be able to make meaningful choices, to have the ability to affect one's situation that is the distinguishing feature of poverty. Creekside Community Church, I just want to bring this full circle, they eventually, when they started considering, they changed their response. So instead of giving presents to children, they bought presents and they allowed the parents to come and buy them at a discount. And the parents can then go and give their own children presents themselves, thereby increasing dignity, increasing participation, and changing mindsets. We just have to rewire the way we think sometimes. Okay, so I want to come to Ealing. I love Ealing. I moved here six years ago. Um, Since moving here, I've got married. We've had a kid, bought a house. I genuinely love Ealing. I, lo- I love living in this part of London. And I wonder if you would connect with this description of Ealing I found from Dexter's estate agents. What was once known as the quiet queen of the suburbs is now one of the most exciting and desirable places to live in London. With its crossrail station soon, well, 2019, opening its doors, <laughs> halving journey time into central London, Ealing is the greenest borough in London. Offering a rare mix of history as well as modern living thanks to its ongoing redevelopment projects with a wide choice of shopping, restaurants, bars, and theatre destinations. There is something here for everyone. Who likes Ealing? I do have a different version, though, that I've rewritten. Sorry to spoil. I'm not an estate agent, no. What was once known as the quiet queen of the suburbs now has the highest number of residents with no qualifications in West London, with a record 30,200. Among its many attractions are the hospitals, where in one year alone, 9,000 people were admitted with alcohol abuse and 3,000 with substance abuse, far exceeding the London average. Ealing is the greenest borough In London, however, the population's physical activity level is among the lowest in the UK. Many new and exciting leisure complexes, restaurants and bars are all going to be unattainable for the 50.3% of children in the borough who live in low-income households. There's another side to our community. They're all from the Ealing Council's Children's Poverty Toolkit, equipping various people to respond. I remember one moment when I saw the other side to Ealing. Um, Pete and I, we were running Alpha in Costa. Uh, This was about five years ago now, really early days for our church. And we'd provide everyone coffee and we'd provide everyone food. That's a part of us wanting to host as a church. And every week we'd have this one guy who came. He'd always come late and he'd always want as much food as we were willing to buy him. He'd often come smelling of alcohol. He'd often come just telling us about the day that he's had, and it's not a day that I ever wanted to have myself. Most weeks, we'd go with him to Tesco's to buy some food or to the tube station to top up his Oyster card. 
But one week, near the end of the course, he came, and he came desperate. And he came saying, they've got my passport, they've got my passport. (laughs) And I was like, sorry? (laughs) They've got my passport, and we need to go get my passport. I can't get it back. Anyway, so after the people, the guests had left Alsa, we walked just 50 meters to a very inconspicuous corner shop just on the high street, and we walked in, and immediately the person behind the till stood up, recognizing the person that we were with. And we said, I believe you've got this man's passport. And they said, yeah, I do. He gave it to me because I gave him cash. It's a deposit. He needs to pay for it. And I said, sorry. <laughs> and it turns out he's just running this dodgy, hidden, like payday loan scheme. So he reached behind the vodkas and the spirits and drew out an envelope. And in it, there was his passport. And I'm not sure what else. And we paid the money. And we got him back his passport. It sounds simple, but I saw a side to Ealing that I did not recognize that night. As I saw in what is just a normal corner shop, there's devices that keep people trapped in poverty. And so the Ealing Council, in their toolkit, uh, where I drew those statistics from, there's various people who can respond. There's various actors. There are the council themselves. There are the police, there's healthcare, there's schools, there's Ealing parks to make people do exercise more. There's all sorts of people who can respond when you look in their toolkit. But guess what? (laughs) They didn't say the church. The council did not say the church is placed to respond to the brokenness that we see in our home, on our doorstep, in our community. And we've been looking at this for a month now. We've been looking at the poor for Four weeks, and I just want to draw out, as we close this series, just a few actions from each of those weeks. Last week, I talked about good intentions being bad, but there are some that are good, and those are those commitments that we can make when we hear a message in how we want to respond. So when Pete spoke about the poor in our local church, as there are people here listening, and you yourselves are materially poor, I recognize that. He gave us seven actions. I'm not going to do all seven. I'm just going to draw out two. And the first was do not judge. When someone walks through that door wearing nice clothes and got a good watch, and two minutes later someone walks through that door looking like they've slept rough, are you as quick to offer them a cup of tea or not? Do you judge very quickly, very gently, according to what someone looks like? Are you as willing to invite them to your home, or are you more nervous? We need to be so careful of that. We want to be a church that's welcoming not just to different languages, but to all people in the society that we live. The second, one of the other things that Pete said was about counting yourself in to all get involved. You yourself genuinely may be in material poverty today. And you may be thinking, well, once I've sorted myself out, I'll be used by God to help others. Do not count yourself out now. Walking with someone on a journey is powerful The answer is not giving someone the cash that you might have, so therefore, why do you need to discount yourself? So this today is a message for us all. Count yourself in. Uh, Two weeks ago, my colleague from Tear Fund Joe came to speak about the environment. There were heaps of things that we could do in response. There were a commitment to use less uh, kind of one-use plastics or coffee cups. You could uh, use more public transport, cut out your consumption of meat. You could change your energy provider to a green energy provider. These aren't suddenly the new criteria for being a Christian on the tick list, by the way. (laughs) 
Those things don't make you a Christian, but what she demonstrated in that talk was how they are linked to our response to God's creation and how actually us living lightly in God's creation improves the lives of the poor because climate change is not felt by us, albeit in recent weeks we'd argue it is. (laughs) Climate change is felt by those who live along the equator the most. Finally, last week I spoke about the global poor. I gave you three actions. The first, to use your voice in lobbying for change of unjust policies. The second was giving your money towards work that releases people from poverty, not keeps them within it. And the third was praying, being informed, being specific in the way that you pray. I was speaking about tier funds. That's who I work for. And if you responded to us, which I know many of you did, thank you. But don't just respond to us. (laughs) There's so many different charities doing all sorts. Just respond to at least one of them. And all these seven actions... They all apply to this message today about our response to the poor in our community, okay? So think about these in the context of our response in England, but I'm not going to go over old ground and repeat all of them. But I do just want to now pull out three responses that we can all take in our response to the poverty in our community. So though, I am going to highlight some things. I feel like saying at this point, this is a snapshot, I'm going to draw out some ideas, draw out some charities, draw out some volunteering opportunities. This is such a small window into the opportunities that you have to get involved in what God's doing in England and in Ealing. I could be talking about winter night shelters. I could be talking about Beeson to provide people with furniture. I could be talking about so many things that you're probably aware of going, oh, I hope he talks about my thing. I might not. But if you've got an interest, get involved. So the first response then is volunteer is get involved and volunteer. So, Christians Against Poverty, I think they are phenomenal. You may not have heard of them, they're otherwise called CAP. And um, what they do is they come alongside people trapped in debt and walk along with them on their journey out of that. And uh, I've heard John Kirkby speak on a few occasions, he's the founder of CAP. And his story is so like those stories we hear God use people again and again. 24 years ago, he, his marriage was broken. He was divorced. He was renting a room from a friend, and when his children came to visit, they'd sleep on camp beds on his bedroom floor. He was out of work. He worked in the finance sector, and he was caught in debt himself. He was being chased by creditors. You know, it talks in Psalm 40 about, you know, being in a pit. He would describe himself as being in that pit, caught in the mud and the mire. And there, Jesus met him. In that moment of crisis, Jesus broke into his life through a local church reaching out and transformed his life. I'm doing an injustice to his story, but he quickly um, turned it around, not in his own strength, but because of the Holy Spirit and Jesus in his life. He met his soon-to-be wife, Lizzie. They got married. He started working. He was working himself out of poverty, out of this debt. But two weeks into his marriage, God spoke to him and said, I want to use your story of coming out of debt and your experience in the financial sector to help others caught in the same place. So on his kitchen table, he started Christians Against Poverty. And 22 years on, there's over 650 centers across the UK run through local churches helping people in a crisis. Last year alone, CAP supported 21,000 people And that's people like Neville. And we're going to watch a short video of his story now. 
Yeah, we had a, a low income, three kids at home. The money we had, we had to give to them so they could get a bus to, co to college or to school and back home again. We just, the amount of stuff that we got out of the catalogue, um, the payments got too high and we just couldn't keep up. And we fell behind and behind and behind. I had really bad breakdown. Um, I thought myself, um, if I couldn't get anybody to help me with my debts, um, because all the all the uh, debts were in my name, I thought that if I wasn't here, then no one could touch the family. We did go to Cap. We did pick up that phone. We got a, a nice call of a, of a lady, Sally, came to told me the ins and outs of CAP, what CAP can do for us, and, and they take over for you. And once they've taken over, you haven't got a thing to worry about. Don't worry about letters coming to your door or phone calls. CAP are in charge. That's it, I am totally debt free. And it's all over with. But I won't forget CAP. I'll never forget what they've done for me. I'm getting on better with my family. Uh, there's no more thoughts of self-harm. And I'm very, very happy indeed. God bless CAP. I love you. Thank you, brilliant. Sorry, you've got me again. Uh... They are phenomenal. Me and Anugra, we support CAP. I love what they do. I said I wouldn't say it. Give your money to CAP. <laughs> I said I wouldn't repeat old ground. Pray for CAP. Support what they do. They are incredible. And if you today are caught in debt, genuinely, if you are feeling anxious, if you cannot sleep at night, if you're just stressed with worry, don't leave today without talking. Don't leave today without talking to me or talking to Winnie or talking to Pete or someone on the prayer team later. We can't get you out of debt today, but we can walk with you, plan with you through working with CAP on that journey. And so there is a local CAP centre, St. Paul's Church in Northfields. This is about kingdom. This is not about Redeemer. This is about kingdom. Um, St. Paul's Church in Northfields, they run a debt crisis centre. You may be thinking, I want to get involved. I want to be one of those people who walk alongside someone caught in debt on that journey out of poverty. There's more videos like Neville's online. Um, there's also life skills training, debt, um, addiction, kind of cycle of addiction breaking, uh, and jobs clubs as well. There's all sorts of ways you can get involved with CAP. You don't have to be an accountant or a specialist debt advisor. You just have to be willing to be used. And so um, James and Alicia... And Chris, who I can't find, put your hand, could you stand? Is that all right? Could you guys just stand? They have been trained this year as CAP leaders um, on the CAP money course. And if you've got any questions about wanting to get more involved with CAP, speak to them today. They're going to be available just at the welcome desk later if you want to find out more about them today. Thank you, guys. And uh, I could ask Chris to keep standing because the second thing I just want to highlight and... Um, Pete, I'm running a little bit over here, just, there's grace, um, is the food bank, uh, is the food bank, and uh, this is something that Chris, along with a team of others, started six years ago in Ealing. We probably all know what the food bank does in its most simplest form, you know, we have a 
um, box there you can bring food to each week. The food bank, what it does is it helps people in a crisis, not every week of their lives, but in a crisis with a three-day food parcel for them and their families, um, seeing them through that moment of crisis. And uh, from starting five years ago um, in Ealing, there's now five centres across our borough. Um, and last year alone, over 5,710 three-day food parcels were given out to those in our own community through the food bank. But the food bank, what I want to say is not about just about the food. They don't run what they call centres, they run what they call cafes. And this is a really important distinction. The aim of the food bank isn't to process people as quick as possible to get them their food and then get home early in time for pointless, whatever it is, your, your daytime TV. It's actually to spend time with people, to sit down, have a cup of tea, give people space, time, and dignity to share their life with them, not to process them as quick as possible. Um, I could spend 10 minutes just sharing what um, Chris was telling me yesterday about the people he sat with and he prayed with in Greenford um, as part of the volunteer team that he was leading just yesterday. If you want to find out more about food banks, speak to them. But I want to be specific. And that is, I spoke to the food bank this week, and if you want to volunteer, they're looking for volunteers in Southall at their cafe. They're looking for drivers who can help um, in the borough, and they're looking to start an Ealing Broadway Centre cafe later this year. So you just add your name to the list um, if you want to find out more about that. Go online or speak to Chris and Tricia today, as they'd love to tell you more. Now, I may not have told, like, highlighted a volunteering opportunity that you're really passionate about. You might be passionate about the prisoners or the elderly. I say step up. I say it gently. I say it with conviction. Uh, the World Vision research showed that 81% of church leaders say that it's church members who initiate volunteering opportunities themselves. It's not the church leader saying, we've got this, come and get involved. It's church members saying, I feel God leading me in this way. Can, can I do this with others in the church? So God may be, through the course of these four weeks, putting something on your heart for a people group or a vulnerable community or an estate or something in Ealing. Pray about it, consider it, talk about it, do something about it. So our first one there is volunteer with your time. Our second response there is speaking out. It's again, it's advocacy. Now genuinely, we live in a democracy. This is a blessing. So the first thing I want to say is vote. It sounds so simple, but use your democratic privilege to vote. Vote in national elections, vote in local elections. The local elections they don't just fix parking zones. Uh, <laughs> the local elections do a whole lot more than just change parking zones. It says in Isaiah to learn to do right, to seek justice, to defend the oppressed, to take up the cause of the fatherless, to plead the case of the widow. So vote. The other thing, though, is also engage in lobbying and advocacy. So um, Jesus was really clear in the, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 17 that we ought to pay our taxes. Uh, Paul in Romans 13 is very clear that we are subject to our governing authorities. Remember, though, we live in a democracy. We get to have a say on what the taxes go to. We get to have a say who is our governing authority. So vote and lobby. And let's not just be those who lobby and criticize when something is wrong. Let's not just be those who are saying, oh, this is broken, this is bad, you're not doing a good job. Let's not think that the church is associated with just heavy amounts of criticism. 
But when an MP does something right, <laughs> when a councillor does something good or you agree with a decision, let them know. How good would it be if our own council think, oh, Redeemer, they're just really supportive. Yes, they challenge me when something's not right, but they're otherwise behind me when things are going well. Another sphere of your influence in speaking out is your own workplace. So another opinion poll. How many of you know if your employer is a living wage employer? Put your hands up. One, two, three. That's actually a lot less than four. Okay, I'm going to stop there before I carry on too long. Um, Four people, that's a lot less than I thought. People may not know what the living wage is. What it is, it's a minimum wage set by the Living Wage Foundation that calculates the true cost of living. So the minimum wage nationally, legally set, is constructed in this age-old formula that doesn't really work. What the Living Wage Foundation does is say, well, this is what costs to travel to your job, to buy food for your family, to live in London and pay your taxes. And, uh, and so there it's set to bar about £1.50 higher than the, than the government. And so if your company is not a living wage employer, what they're likely doing is paying a cleaner or someone in those kind of service roles a wage that means that they're on the edge of debt every single month when all those expenses have gone out. And just by increasing that hourly rate by a little amount, actually what that gives people is dignity, as they're probably not as reliant on benefits, so they get to make their own choices with their own income. It's good. So Tear Fund was not a living wage employer four years ago until one of my colleagues said, why aren't we? And so we wrote to the executive team and said, why aren't we? (laughs) And then we were. You know, we had to budget it. We had to think about it. It had to be in the next financial year, not that week. But we planned to become one. So if your work is a living wage employer, thank them. Say, well done. If they're not, then speak out and say, why aren't we? I think we should. Lastly then, and I will be closing with this, is what about our everyday actions? Last week as I left church, I was conflicted. I don't know how many of you noticed, there was a lady standing at the door like crooked over a walking stick with a cup of coffee with coins in it, asking for money. I can honestly say that I have never, in six years, either noticed or actually seen someone at the door of Eileen Town Hall as we leave church. And God decided to put her there on the morning that we spoke about the poor. I was speaking last week about how our response is not through giving stuff, about how we need to walk alongside someone on a journey out of poverty, and then God puts a lady straight in front of nearly all of us. I can see nodding, so I think she was there for a length of time. And I wonder, how do we respond? I do not have an answer here. I have been genuinely conflicted with this throughout all week. I've been, I was talking with colleagues, and I've been praying about it, and I bring my mess to you as I close this series. There are arguments for not giving people money on the street. My problem as I've been thinking about that this week, though, is largely what they stem from is that people can't be trusted. People can't be trusted because they go by alcohol, they go by drugs. So what we're doing is we're projecting a lot of what that Creekside Community Church did. It may be that you choose not to give money. That is perfectly acceptable. I want to say it. But if the judgment that you get to in making that is that people can't be trusted... I think we need to examine ourselves as we rethink what poverty is. You may very deliberately come to the decision to give money, 
I think Jesus responded as they had need, but I still don't know if that's the answer. I was talking with colleagues about it this week, and my colleague Laura, and I don't want this to contradict everything that we said the last four weeks, but she was like, I just, I've given up trying to be perfect because I think it just tires me out. So she sees the same person on her way to work every day, but she knows his name. She knows the guy's name. She knows the, his dog's name. And he knows her name. And she knows that when, on the occasion, she does choose to buy him food, she knows what he wants. So she, she is choosing to give to those around as she sees brokenness. But she's doing it as someone who sits, knows their name, hears their story, and knows what they want. Not just goes and buys something and says, oh, here you are. I think those times when we try to alleviate poverty, or what I should say is the sense of guilt we have in alleviating poverty really quickly is not the way that we see Jesus do it. Because Jesus sits with people in their brokenness. Jesus spends time with them. He treats them with dignity, and he walks with them. I appreciate it's not practical to do that every time you see someone in need. And it's not just the homeless person. It's the person who's drunk on the tube on their way back, and you're thinking they are a danger to themselves and others. Do you ignore, go to the next carriage? It's the person or the mother or the father at the school gate, and you can just tell the weight of the world is just on them, and they are ready to snap. Do you just think, oh, quick, get home. Let's feed the kids. I think we need to be aware of those moments when we see brokenness around us and go, God, how do you want me to respond? I do not have an answer. But we just need to say, God, Use me as you would in this moment. Teach me what you want me to respond to. And I'll finish with this quote, again from Brian Thicket. He says, Each Christian has a unique set of gifts, callings, and responsibilities that influence the scope and manner in which to fulfill the biblical mandate to help the poor. Some Christians are called to work at government level, seeking to promote justice for the poor through public policy. Others are called to work in business world where they can provide job opportunities for the unemployed. Many Christians work with churches or parachurch ministries, allowing them to openly communicate the love of Jesus Christ through both words and deeds. And some Christians simply minister as individuals walking across the street to help the neighbor in need.